to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullock, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, resiliency, business continuity, crisis management, and any other topic that's relatable to those items. I'd like to remind everyone, if there is a specific topic you'd like us to talk about on the show or for you to be on the show, Please feel free, go to the Voice America webpage and the page for the show, there is a button that says send the email a host and you can contact me and let me know what you want to talk about. I do respond to all emails, so we'll uh, set something up. Either we'll get you on the show or we'll find somebody else to talk about you. Uh, not talk about you, but talk about your subject on the show. Uh, if there's any advertising, you want to talk about a product or service or sponsorship, please feel free. Contact me the same way. We do have some uh, uh, opportunities available for you. And today's show is brought to us by the people at BoastAssessment.com, B-O-A-S-T.com. They have this self-assessment tool that can help you manage uh, the status of your resiliency program as you go along and help you redirect your resources uh, for small and medium-sized organizations. Now, today's show, as you know, I attended the Continuity and Resilience Today conference in Toronto at the end of May this year, and uh, we also attended last year. And throughout the year, we interview a lot of the speakers and presenters at the conference. Today is no difference. We do have one of the speakers and presenters from CRT this year, who is also an author uh, of the book, The Art of Crisis Leadership. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Mr. Rob Weinhold. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, I didn't tell you this beforehand uh, via email or anything, but when I listened to your presentation in Toronto, I thought, wow, I think I've heard this somewhere before. It's because when, I, when you showed your graphic of your book, I had your book at home on my shelf. <laughs> so <laughs> I knew it sounded familiar. I'm going, why does this sound so familiar? I know this. So uh, thank you for the book. Actually, it's full of a lot of great information, which I know we're going to touch on shortly. But well, That's uh, great to hear. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, if you read the book, I'm sure you got a lot of good nights sleep. You know, it puts you to sleep pretty <laughs> quick. That's a good thing. No, believe it or not, I'm actually really into all this kind of stuff. Uh, these kind of books keep me going really well. So <laughs> it didn't put me to sleep. <laughs> Before we get started, uh, can you give our listeners a bit of a biography on yourself, You know all the things you've done and how you got to where you are today? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, in the United States, and I actually started my career in the Baltimore Police Department, so I ran around and played cops and robbers when I was a lot younger. I had more hair and uh, was a little lighter, <laughs> had a pretty quick 40 time back then. And anyway, was promoted through the ranks and eventually became the public affairs director for the Baltimore Police Department. So for about six years, I had an opportunity to go out and uh, 
talk about crime, public policy, tried to stay away from politics, but represent a big city police department with no shortage of issues. From there, I went to the Department of Justice where I was the chief of staff, traveled around the country, had an opportunity to shape national policy, finished my public service career, and then I worked for Cal and Bill Ripken for seven years. Uh, Cal, you, many of your listeners probably know, he's the Iron Man of baseball. Uh, both mm-hmm. Cal and Bill were major league uh, baseball players and had an opportunity to to grow their business and work with them, and it was a very rewarding um, experience. And 10 years ago, I started a company called Falston Group, headquartered in Baltimore, and we focus on building, strengthening, and defending reputations each and every day. We work with large public companies all the way down to small restaurateurs and individuals and uh, focus on everything from data breach to bad press, social media attack, investigation, litigation, sex scandals, you name it. There's no shortage of issues, and I always say that we operate at the very critical intersection of leadership strategy and communications. So that's a very brief bio, and uh, we have a firm that uh, is highly motivated, and we truly love helping people during life's most critical times. And I guess that's how the book came about, all those experiences that you've been through. Yeah, you know, it was a kind of a bucket list item, and I knew I had all of this stuff in my head, and how could I take my experiences and weave them into tightly told stories, and at the end of every chapter, give four to six takeaways through the lens of the person that actually went through the crisis, so that others could be helped if they go through something similar. And so, the people that have read the book uh, have really enjoyed it because it was very practical. It's real life. I always say real emotion, real results, and uh, you know all of the stories in there are uh, true. And uh, it's become quite a resource. Uh, Amazon thought so when it first came out. It quickly rose to number one in public relations, number one in crisis management, top 100 in leadership. So very grateful for the opportunity to share a little bit of what I know with others. Well, there are some really uh, heartbreaking stories in here. You know, uh, like I said, I did read this and there are some really interesting stories, heartbreaking stories. And the nice thing about this book and how you communicate this, it's very easy for anyone to understand. Yeah, thank you very much. That was really the goal is to to write it in, you know, plain English so to speak and make sure that you know, we don't get caught up in jargon or caught up in, you know, speaking at a level that's uh beyond or misses the audience, but we want people to know that you know, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when crisis strikes and these types of situations are very unique and diverse within their own right and happen to, you know, very uh famous people with high profiles all the way down mm-hmm. to you know, the average person is trying to live their life each and every day and do the right thing for the right reasons. And uh, the next thing you know, they're thrust into crisis and uh, just don't know where to turn. And so hopefully this book will uh, help people uh, along the way uh, throughout life. Well, I've, I've referenced it a couple of times, so it's definitely there. So let's jump right into this. What's your definition of a crisis? Because there's more than one out there and people interpret it differently. How do you define it? Well, you know, crisis can be defined in many different ways, but uh, what I generally say is a crisis. I always say it's an issue of sensitivity, adversity, or crisis, and they usually cost time, money, customers, and eventually your career. 
in the worst case of scenarios, lives. And I talked about a few of those, you know, at the beginning of the show, but it could be natural disaster, employee relations, IP theft, rumors, competitive disruption, hostile takeovers, uh, you name it. I mean, there's so many different types of crises, but what I have found is organizations generally do a pretty good job of advancing their mission and driving their business goals. But when something throws them off course just a little bit and prevents them from achieving their goals or advancing their mission, that smoldering issue could turn into a crisis, and the next thing you know, their entire business is disrupted. That happens on the personal side, whether you're talking about health issues, divorce, addiction, financial troubles, and so on and so forth, and certainly on the professional side, as I have already highlighted. So the definition can vary, and I say to people, look, if two people are driving down the street and a child runs out into the street and both drivers slam on their brakes and avoid the collision, one driver may just keep on going and listen to music like nothing ever happened. The other may have to pull over and compose themselves for 30 minutes just to make sure that they can <laughs> continue on throughout their day. So everyone has a little bit of a different threshold for risk and a little uh, different tolerance for crisis. But uh, generally speaking, if you're in business, it is something that costs you those four things, time, money, stakeholder confidence or consumers, and your career. And again, generally in that order. I was going to ask you about that because – you know, what could be a crisis for you doesn't necessarily mean a crisis for me. And I think there's an old saying, you know, bad planning on your part doesn't constitute a crisis on mine or, or something along those lines. So does it come down to um, the organization itself, how they're set up or or what they have in place that causes them a crisis? You know, it's interesting. I think well-run companies who are very predictive in their mindset and plan for crisis actually encourage crisis to come along within the industry because it leads out the competition. There are many companies that just are not prepared for a crisis, you know, again, whether that's economic or some kind of recall or some competitive landscape issue, and the next thing you know, they're out of business, but the strong survive and they thrive. So they become bigger, faster, stronger after that critical time than they were before. And so I think that, um, if you, to me, if you do three things ahead of time, uh, it's very important uh, as a company. One would be to do a confidential um, executive crisis assessment, and that's where you identify the issues within the company and within the industry that could go wrong. And once you identify those, you know, 8, 10, 12 points of exposure, you do everything you can to reduce those points of exposure and make sure that you are able to preserve the time, money, customers, and eventually your career. The next thing is I think that uh, a lot of leaders, when they get in trouble, they just don't know how to handle it, so they stick their head in the sand, right? We all know what's mm-hmm. up stick your head in the sand. So that being said, we're able to put in a crisis communications plan so everybody understands ahead of time who the primary and secondary spokespeople are, who's in charge of resource management, who's in charge of the legal point of view, you know, who's in charge of marketing, who's in charge of keeping their finger on the pulse of social media and the ambassadors and the influencers and the detractors and those who care about the issue. And once we're able to put that in place, um, we then do media training. We want to make sure that people are 60 minutes ready so that when an issue erupts, they're able to handle it with um, a high degree of authenticity. And I always say that reputation leads to trust, and trust leads to valuation, and not all currency is financial. And once all of those pieces are in place, 
It creates something we call organizational muscle memory. And so when you have organizational muscle memory and you know exactly what you're going to do when an issue of sensitivity, adversity, or crisis arises, you are prepared, and I think you weather the storm, and again, you're bigger, faster, stronger after than you were before, and many times value goes up. Well, I've got a question for you. You mentioned the media training. In today's world, a lot of the media is now social media. So does today's training differ than training you may have given 10 years ago before social media? Absolutely. The velocity of news and the velocity of information is as quick as it's ever been. And as many of your listeners know, people can mobilize on social media much more quickly and form an opinion much more quickly in what we call the court of public opinion uh, many times before an organization even has time to decision-make and react. And so today, you have to make sure that you're monitoring the conversation on social media in real time, if possible, and understand the trending conversation, the different message points. And you have to, as an organization, be very fluid and um, adapt to the speed of communication. Gone is the time when you have uh, time to prepare a statement or a point of view and have it go to legal for 30 days to study the pros and the cons and so on and so forth. That needs to happen very quickly. And so the traditional media route where an executive may do an interview, it's extremely important, of course, and that interview will live on social media. But the conversation really is occurring on the digital platforms, and so Mm -hmm. both are incredibly important in this day and age, and you must train for both platforms. And and when I say platforms, I mean traditional and digital, but as you know, there's many different types of platforms in both of those categories that you must be responsive to. So how you handle a controversy on Twitter will be different than how you might, you know, generate a video and put it on YouTube and how you distribute that and how you handle a traditional media interview with a reporter. And so while the message points will be the same or similar, how it's delivered, the timing, the platform, the methodology, the audience you reach, all of that will change. So very important to be prepared for that ahead of time. So from speaking with other guests on the show, they've always said that organizations uh, should have a dedicated person to social media. With regards to executive uh, training, should we train executives on how to use social media as well so that when they're in front of media speaking – they're aligning to the message that's coming out on social media. Do the two need to walk hand in hand? Well, I'm a big fan of cross-pollination. I mean, uh, the more you know how to do things from a strategic and a tactical standpoint, the better. But, you know, executives, mm-hmm. they're largely responsible for the brand. They, you know, certainly see the vision, the direction. They They can see the whole room, for lack of a better term. But the people who are tactical, it might be a social media manager or a marketing manager, they certainly have to know how to tactically implement the messaging. And so uh, the more that everyone understands the other's lens that they look through, the better. And so I'm a firm believer in cross-training and making sure that if an executive within a very, very tight window of time understands the importance of getting a message out after hours, I want that executive to know how to tweet. I want that executive mm-hmm. to know how to use the social media platforms because I think, uh, again, the, the speed with which information travels and the importance of establishing a balanced message in the marketplace has never been greater. 
Well, we all know there are people in the world right now who use uh, some social media quite a bit, <laughs> sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. Yeah, not always to their benefit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. And I'm not getting political here. I'm just just mentioning it. <laughs> sure. Um, we, we've come to the end of our first segment, so we're going to take a break. We're talking with the author of The Art of Crisis Leadership, Mr. Rob Weinhold. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Taramino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off-limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Rob Weinhold, the author of The Art of Crisis Leadership, Rob, in the first segment, you were giving us a lot of great information, you know, uh, about uh, defining a crisis and um, some training aspects with executives. But I'm wondering, how do we identify that we have a crisis or that we're in a crisis or that there's the potential for a crisis? And the reason I ask is um, working in different places. I know sometimes, you know, an issue crops up and it's, you know, no big deal, but 
after all of a sudden a week, we've got a major crisis. How do we identify that escalation, you know, from the molehill to the mountain? Well, maybe the best way to answer that is really to talk about the anatomy of a crisis. I say that uh, when a crisis erupts or is really a smoldering issue, which is gaining momentum, it generally impacts your people, your assets, and your brand. And so from a people perspective, uh, very, you know, in a most general way, you have your people who are uh, potentially uh, involved in a type of situation where there's a physical risk and then maybe an emotional risk. And an emotional risk could be the tail end of an active shooter situation. An emotional risk could be a riff. It could be a lot of things that impact people in their living. Um, the assets are really your physical plan, your intellectual property, your data, all of those things which you need to protect to ensure that your business is solvent and is growing. And then the brand, of course, is extremely important. It gets down to your reputation. Brand has value. And uh, many studies have shown that more than 60% of marketplace value is based on reputation. And so that's extremely important. So by way of example, in Baltimore, if the mayor of the city of Baltimore gets locked up for stealing gift cards, not only does the mayor take a hit, but the city of Baltimore takes a hit. And a lot of people forget about that, that you know, cities have reputations as well, and it's extremely important, whether it's violence or education or uh, health and well-being. You know, businesses have decisions to make, where they want to headquarter, where they want to relocate to, and so on and so forth. And so the economic viability is extremely important. The other thing I'll mention is that there are many types of risk, legal risk, competitive marketplace risk, economic risk. And we focused uh, generally on reputational risk because all of the risk elements that I just described really do roll up into reputation. And again, I think it's important to remember that reputation leads to trust, which leads to valuation. And specifically as it relates to chief executives, their reputations personally lead to marketplace trust, which then translates to valuation. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I thought it might be a good perspective to take when uh, trying to establish, you know, where a crisis might be born and how you identify it. I generally look at people, assets, and brands. Can you give us an example, either from the book or maybe something, um, you know, that you've seen uh, recently where something started out small and just kind of progressed? Uh, there's a lot of examples. Uh, let's see. I think what's interesting is um, Tide Pods, right? You may remember the Tide Pod co- controversy recently. Oh, where yeah. Kids were was- eating the Tide Pods, and uh, it was more of a challenge on the Internet. And All of a sudden, kids were getting sick. They were choking. I think there was even a death. And so all of a sudden, mm-hmm. Tide found themselves in the middle of this controversy that was unanticipated. And it was one of those things where there was one incident and two incidents, and uh, social media really enabled the challenge. And as a result, you know, Tide was put in a position where they had to begin to do PSAs, and they did it with Gronkowski from the Patriots. And they did a great job of responding to individual messages, giving health advice, um, making sure that people were contacting 911 or poison control, uh, you know, if they were in uh, a dire situation. And so... 
unexpectedly, Tide found themselves in this situation where they had to be very responsive to the marketplace and make sure that they were not only uh, telling people what to do with their product and how to use it appropriately, but also were in a position where they had to be responsive to parents and others who were very, very concerned about this health and safety risk. And so many times what you find, particularly in the product market, is one incident happens, it takes off on social media and creates a level of awareness more quickly than there's ever been a level of awareness before and forces companies very, very quickly to take a public stance and to try to mitigate or remedy the situation. So that's just one small example that, you know, uh, recently happened. But we can look at Tiger, Toyota, Martha Stewart, Goldman Sachs, Penn State, BP, Ray Rice, the NFL. We can take a look at United Airlines, Equifax, Uber, you know, the Me Too movement. Facebook's been in the world of trouble. Um, mm-hmm. The NFL has taken a lot of hits regarding their anthem protest and, you know, certainly uh, the revenue lines have taken a hit, the concussions, uh, elected officials. I mean, we can go on and on and on uh, mm-hmm. regarding case studies and analyze each one of those, uh, gosh, for a college semester at a time. It's interesting you mentioned the, the Tide example because it got me thinking that um, social media, I guess if you're not savvy you know, and understanding it, can create the crisis for you. Well, absolutely. In fact, take a look at um, around that same time you had the Crock-Pot scandal, right? So Crock-Pot, plugging along, everybody has a, seems to have a Crock-Pot in their house, you know, <laughs> just moving along, 50-year-old company, whatever the case may be, has never had an issue, and all of a sudden, a very popular program, This Is Us, one of their lead characters dies as a result of a Crock-Pot shorting out and causing the fire, which was 100% fictional, you know, in the storyline, and then all of a sudden, mm. people that were watching it were like, oh, my gosh, can crockpots actually, you know, short circuit? Could they cause fires? And crockpot is on defense all of a sudden, not even realizing or knowing it was a storyline in the show. And they began to field a lot of calls. There was Twitter traffic. I don't even think they had a Twitter handle at that point. And so they had to get connected very quickly. And what they were able to do was they were able to very creatively not lawyer up, not take a stance of this is unbelievable. I can't believe that anybody would talk about Crock-Pot like this or blame the show. They actually embraced the crisis. And they said, oh, the show This Is Us is a really popular show. We love the character. We can't believe this happened. We're devastated as well. But let me tell you, we've had a strong legacy of crockpots over the past 50 years. So they were very empathetic to the show and the consumer. They established an emotional connection to the audience. And all of a sudden, you know, they turned this adverse situation in most boardrooms to a positive simply by the way that they handled it. So... You know, I have found that America, uh, particularly, that's where I live, but many people in the world are very, very forgiving. And they're forgiving uh, if someone is embroiled or a company is embroiled in controversy, as long as it's not Mm -hmm. an absolute or is so terrible that you can't, you know, forget about it. If people realize that you're truly sorry and you're working hard to never make this mistake again, I have found that most people are forgiving and willing to give you a second chance. And a lot of it has to do with the way you handle a crisis. We embrace something called the uh, Resilient Moment Communications Model, established by a gentleman named Dr. George Everly. I've taught with uh, George, and I just think he's a, a brilliant mind. But based on research, if you answer these five questions during any situation of sensitivity, adversity, or crisis, 
then more than 95% of the questions that people have will have been answered. And the questions are these. What happened? What caused it? What are the short and long-term effects? What's being done about it? And what needs to be done in the future? And if you follow that very simple roadmap to try to give people the answers they're looking for, you establish a very high sense of credibility, authenticity, and you're relaying the information that people want to know so you don't establish a communications gap. And within that gap is where all the rumors start. And, um, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest observations I have, and, and it's really our mantra. And that is, if you don't tell your story, someone else will. And when someone else tells your story, it certainly won't be the story you want told. So when you find yourself in a difficult situation, tell your story. So why don't people do that then? You know, we, because it, you've got examples as well, and I've, I've heard examples. You read them all the time. People don't follow this, you know, what happened and, you know, what, what caused it, what's happening in the future, et cetera. You know, they, they don't follow that, uh, that guideline and create, you know, an even worse situation. Why is that? Well, I think it's a number of reasons. Number one, when you're dealing with a large corporate crisis or maybe one that immediately escalates to the court of public opinion is high profile, getting command of the facts is not always easy right? But Mm -hmm. that should not prevent you from going public and talking about your efforts to gain control of the facts. And you can do that through the resilient moment communications model that we talked about. Even if you don't have all the facts, you have enough information to at least answer those questions and promise some follow-up. Some people are just not comfortable. They're nervous, so they don't speak. They don't trust the news media, so they don't speak because they believe that if they don't have editorial control, their story won't be told the way that it wants. Many leaders hope it dissipates. They say, well, you know, maybe tomorrow it'll be better or the next day it'll be better after that and so on and so forth. And so they think that by ignoring it or sweeping the problem under the carpet that it's going to go away and that's just not the case. And so I very much encourage people and organizations to be predictive, to be responsive, and to make sure that they're operating with a high degree of integrity within the court of public opinion. And, uh, you know, this ties into the resilient leadership model that we, you know, very much embrace, if you'd like to talk about that at a certain point. Sure. I've got one question uh, first, and then we'll we'll get to the resilient uh, leadership. Uh, With, you know, what, what you just said, are leaders afraid to say they've made a mistake? Is there a, a fear that admitting guilt or, or admitting a, that there was a problem uh, worse than you know, uh, what repercussions could be? Is that why some people don't you know, a- admit that there's a problem? I've worked with a fear. lot of leaders in many different industries and different parts of the world. And there's really two things that leaders want when they're in trouble. They want us to help them maintain control and weather the storm. And a lot of leaders, when they feel like they're losing control, they get nervous, they get scared, their ego might be in the way. They don't want to admit that they've made a mistake because they think it will illustrate a weakness on their part. They think it will have a damaging Mm. value on their valuation. Or excuse me, yeah, a damaging impact on their valuation. And, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to understand that this is a long-term play. This is a game of chess, not a game of checkers. And so uh, while there might be a dip in stock or there might be a a little bit of reputational equity dip at the end of the day, there are going to be 
bigger, faster, stronger for being authentic, for establishing trust, for putting their hand up and taking responsibility, and then moving past the incident in a way that establishes long-term marketplace trust. Again, my mantra, you don't spin your way through crisis, you lead your way through crisis. It's not about getting past the next day's news story. It's about leading for the long term. And I think if leaders remember that and embrace the mistake and learn from it, they're going to be much better off and they will be uh, operating in the best interest of all of their stakeholders, both internal and external. That leads me to an interesting question. If it's, you know, you're managing a crisis, of course you want it to end as fast as possible, of course, you know, but if it's, you know, a long term, as you suggest, then does that go against what many leaders are told to do with short term profits and things like that? Like, do the two come head to head? And that's what causes some problems with crisis leadership? There's an incredible amount of pressure on chief executives, particularly in the for-profit and non-for-profit world, to either drive revenue, reduce expenses, advance their mission, hit their business goals, and they have boards to answer to, they have stockholders to answer to, they have employees that are watching. And so many times there's a short-term view versus a long-term view. And my point of view is it's a game of chess, not a game of checkers, and you have to think long-term. And so handling a crisis by putting your hand up and taking responsibility, operating with integrity, communicating effectively is extremely important. Even if there's a short-term dip in the cap market or you know your stock or whatever the case may be, whatever metric you're taking a look at, it's going to be for the long-term gain. There's no substitute for trust and authenticity. And when you have those things, you're going to be much better off over the long term. It's not a short-term play. It's a long-term play. And again, I'll go back to this. You don't spin your way through crisis. You lead your way through crisis. Well, it's interesting then that, you know, there are some leaders out there who don't think that way, you know, because I guess it kind of goes against a lot of the, you know, know, when people invest and things like that, they, they want that quick win. It kind of goes against what a lot of us are really taught from a young age. Well, exactly. And if you look at a, this today's society, people are hedonistic at times, right? They want quick results, whether it's a diet or whether it's an investment or whatever the case may be. And they, they don't have the patience to wait over the long term to make sure that they're yielding the results that they want. And the same thing holds true, you know, within the financial world. And so the bottom line is, is that uh, as a leader, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what kind of organization you lead, you have to think long term. And as long as your executive team, your employees, your board, and all the stakeholders understand that your goal is to increase value or advance your mission over the long term, and you can articulate your strategy and why it's important, then I think you'll get much more buy-in than just um, ignoring a problem and hoping it'll go away because these smoldering issues turn into crises very quickly when you ignore them. You know, what's interesting is the Institute for Crisis Management puts out a study every year, and the largest category of crisis is mismanagement. So they take all the crises that occurred and they break them down into different categories, whether it's mismanagement or white-collar crime, workplace violence, discrimination, lawsuits, and so on and so forth. There's also a study that shows how many crises across the country are sudden versus smoldering. 
And uh, it's very interesting to me that almost 70% are smoldering, and the largest category of crisis is mismanagement. So if you marry those two statistics, what it tells you is that we as leaders know about crises or smoldering issues, we fail to do something about them, and the next thing you know, they become full-blown crises. And so the failure to confront not having the courage to deal with situations ahead of time often results in very, very poor outcomes. And many leaders say, gosh, I wish I would have dealt with this a year ago or we would not be in this situation. I think that's a perfect uh, spot to end on our second segment. Today, we're talking with Rob Weinhold, the author of The Art of Crisis Leadership. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Termino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off-limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are talking with Rob Weinhold, the author of The Art of Crisis Leadership. Rob, earlier in uh, the second segment, you mentioned uh, something called resilient leadership. Can you expand on that? 
Tell us what I that sure is. can. I sure can. I go back to uh, Dr. George Everly, and he did a lot of research on this, and it was kind of interesting what the important resilient leadership attributes are really across the world based on research, whether you are the president of a company, whether you are the lead local official in a jurisdiction, a police chief, a baseball coach, whatever it is. And the elements of resilient leadership are the following. The first thing is integrity. You never, ever want to do anything to disrupt your integrity. Once you lose it, very hard time getting it back. And in my work, you know, there's a tendency sometimes for chief executives or leaders to maybe hedge the truth or not tell all of the facts and hoping people won't find out about X, Y, or Z. And I always say in my business, you shovel, you know what, by the shovel, not by the teaspoon. And so <laughs> let's get it out, get it out quickly and make sure that you operate with the highest level of integrity possible. The next element is to communicate effectively. I don't care how many vowels and consonants you have after your name, how many degrees you have. I don't care what your IQ is. If you cannot communicate effectively, you will never be as successful as you want to be, primarily because you will never be able to articulate your position the way you want it articulated, and you won't be able to mobilize people the way you want people mobilized to achieve your goal. And so you have to be able to communicate top to bottom in the organization. And research shows that generally executives in organizations under-communicate to the lowest staff levels by a factor of 10. So effective communication wow. is extremely important. Decisiveness. Research also shows that people would rather follow someone who makes a wrong decision than no decision. And I've seen many organizations, going back to your question, by the way, of why leaders don't jump up to the front, right, and take responsibility mm -hmm. and handle issues very publicly, very quickly, it, be, it is because of indecisiveness. They do not make decisions because they're worried about the legal ramifications, the economic impact, the impact on stakeholders, and many other people that depend on the business or the organization. But failing to make a decision is a decision. They become the mm -hmm. bottleneck, and the next thing you know, they continue to spiral in crisis. So again, be decisive. Optimism. Optimism doesn't mean that you're Pollyannic and you go in and you say, hey, the sun is shining when it's not. Optimism is that you're able to approach very difficult issues with a degree of a solution-based mindset. Can you be creative? Can you see the light at the end of the tunnel? Can you rally people around you in a way that they have trust and confidence in you to help them and you weather the storm? So being optimistic versus going in and being defeated and your head hung low. Remember, as a leader, you always have to lead and people are watching how you handle situations. Responsibility. Putting your hand up and taking responsibility. Do you point at others and blame others for your mistake or do you accept responsibility either in whole or in part? Very important to establish trust and authenticity along the way. And there's two more points. The first one is a resilient culture. Operating within a resilient culture means that everyone's success is interdependent. Your success depends on mine. Mine depends on yours. And the highest performing teams that I work with, there may be dissension in the boardroom and many different opinions. But once that decision is made, everybody walks out shoulder to shoulder, lined up behind the solution, and goes ahead and stands behind it and is firm about it. 
But a resilient culture means that everybody is interdependent in terms of what success or failure looks like. And the last thing is behavioral body armor. Um, This is really taking care of yourself, mind, body, and spirit. I've seen many, many executives who are caught up in crisis, and day after day it beats them down to the point where they are not optimistic, and they're not taking care of themselves, and they're sleep-deprived, and then they make decisions in a very, very poor fashion. So behavioral body armor is basically taking care of yourself, eating right, sleeping right, being around people that are supportive and getting good advice. So just to recap very quickly, the resilient leadership model revolves around integrity, communication, decisiveness, optimism, taking responsibility, establishing a resilient culture, and then certainly embracing the tenets of strong behavioral body armor. And again, I think if you do these things, and I use this model routinely, an organization will be bigger, faster, stronger after than they were before that defining moment. How do you become a resilient organization then, you know, with resilient leaders, if very few, if any of these things are occurring? How do you turn it around? It starts uh, at the top. It starts with establishing a safe culture where it's okay to put your hand up and take responsibility and not worried about getting fired. You know, there's an example. I had a, a woman that worked for me one time, and she made a colossal mistake. She came into me, my office. She was crying and very, very upset. She said, do you want me to resign? I said, absolutely not. I said, you are smarter now than you were before you made the mistake. So it's making sure that the culture is such that there's a high level of teaching, communication, motivation, empowerment, and holding people accountable. And again, that starts at the top. So if your chief executive or members of the senior leadership team do not operate with a high degree of integrity and transparency and strong governance, you can believe the shadow of a leader is alive and well and the organization's not going to operate that way. So again, you can work on each one of these elements, but it starts from the top down and the bottom up. And the reason I say the bottom up is it's because who you recruit to that organization is as important as defining the culture as it is from the mm-hmm. top down. So the top down and bottom up is how you move an organization to embrace each one of these tenants so that you are operating optimally. Well, it's interesting you said top down and bottom up because I guess the newest person, you know, uh, if you're using a totem pole, the, the person on the, the lowest end who you know, is not in the executive room, you know, has to feel comfortable enough to be able to step up and say something. And that person who receives that negative message has to be, uh, you know, of the right mindset to talk to that person that's made the mistake. So it, it's interesting that both sides of that have to work together. You know, whether you're Amazon, Google, or, you know, Joe's hardware store down the street, who you hire will determine your culture. And when you hire an employee, if you do your due diligence properly, they are very formidable, right? You Mm -hmm. would never walk down the street at Disney, let's say, and ball up a piece of trash and throw it on the ground. 35 people will look at you and say, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? That's not how you do things here. Well, the same thing, a culture can self-police. And if you embrace integrity and communication, decisiveness, and so on and so forth, and you have a safe culture where you expect results, but you also don't uh, penalize people for mistakes that they can learn from, that's going to reverberate throughout the organization. And when you have that healthy culture and 
all of your stakeholders, internal and external, see that when you face a critical time, you handle it in a way that is just uh, built in and around the tenets of integrity, your value is going to go up. Can you give us an example of where that kind of thing was, um, how should we say, uh, not promoted? Because you gave a great example using yourself, you know, uh, of a good example of a resilient leadership. Can you give us an example where, you know, after investigation or after a crisis, it was found out that, you know, the culture caused you know, the problem not to be brought forward or, or something. Do you, do you well, take a look at Wells Fargo. You know, Wells Fargo faced a, a very difficult situation where their financial and sales numbers seemed to be more important than operating with a sense of integrity. As a result, accounts were open that shouldn't have been open. There was an investigation. Eventually, the chief executive was called before Congress, uh, and the chief executive uh, lost his job. I mean, there's an example that from the top down, there was pressure to perform and to be more profitable to the point where you had employees at lower levels doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, and it caused a problem. And and now when people think of Wells Fargo, while it might be a very good financial institution and they've done a lot to recover, there was a point in time where... You know, they absolutely were in the midst of crisis, and they have brand building and uh, recovery to do. And so there's a lot of examples like that. I mean, Equifax, you know, they knew about a breach, apparently, and they didn't report it for more than six weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. You take a look at the Me Too movement, whether it's Weinstein, Matt Lauer, or other people, you know, uh, who are who are facing scrutiny. When you peel back the layers, you find out that there's been bad behavior over a long period of time. So there was a level of tolerance within the culture and from the top down. And when that occurs and you don't root out the bad behavior, whether it's immoral, unethical, or illegal, it's tacit approval and endorsement. And so mm-hmm. when people don't have confidence in the organization, then over time, the culture erodes and the integrity erodes, the valuation goes down, and it goes back to the model that I talked about. Reputation leads to trust, and trust leads to valuation, and all three of those things suffer when you don't have the right culture in place that embraces the tenets that I talked about within the resilient mm-hmm. leadership model. So there really, there really isn't, you know, one area to point the finger to saying that's the cause when it comes to you know resilient leadership and the culture of an organization it's it's a lot of various factors right from different people at different levels uh, that you know, can create the problems there's a lot of people that can create the problems but here's the challenge there's a lot of people that can stop or prevent the problem and they fail to do so So the question Mm -hmm. is, are you making the right decisions at O-Dark 30 when no one is looking? And when you trace back, again, whether it's, you know, uh, compliance issues or employee relations issues, board dissension, poorly managed mergers, environmental issues, I mean, even the BP situation, when you take a look back at what happened in the Gulf, I mean, there was a failure at a certain period of time. Uh, allegedly to spend money on a piece of equipment which may have prevented the spill. And then once it happened, uh, you know, Tony Hayward got out there and on national news media felt like the problem would be taken care of within 30 days. But 30 days later, the oil slick in the Gulf of Mexico was the size of Puerto Rico getting bigger by the moment, and NBC Nightly News had an oil cam at the bottom of the Gulf. So when you trace it back, there's usually a cause 
and you can trace back decisions that had a certain decision been made differently, it may have prevented a crisis. But remember, mm-hmm. how many issues are smoldering versus sudden? And you'll find that smoldering issues oftentimes can be tamped out with the right courage to confront and proper decision-making, and that is do the right thing for the right reasons. And you won't find yourself in crisis to begin with. And so that old adage of take care of the little things and you never need to worry about the big things is alive and well. Well, believe it or not, we only have about two and a half minutes left. Do you have any uh, closing comments that you'd like to talk about, either the book or you know, crisis leadership in general? Well, I think crisis leadership is really built around instinct and experience. You can go ahead and prepare and do the crisis um, audits. You can have a crisis communications plan in place. You can media train. But at the end of the day, when something happens, there are many different nuances to crisis. And I think there's no substitute for instinct and experience. And I think businesses at every level need to understand that anyone with an Internet connection and a recording device can wreak havoc on their brand, and consumers have much more influence now uh, because their ability to tell the story and their ability to mobilize than they ever have in the history of the world, and the velocity with which information travels can have a devastating impact on your brand if not managed correctly. So the last thing I'd really mention to people is that do everything you can to be predictive and create the organizational muscle memory we spoke of. It's not a matter of if crisis will happen, it's a matter of when, and you really don't need to go looking for it, it will find you. That's true. <laughs> you don't want it to, but it will. It does in our personal lives, right? We, we have things go wrong. We have things go wrong every day, and if we think <laughs> to our personal lives, I mean, anyone who drives, well, I hear a little bit of a rattle in the engine, or something doesn't sound right, but I'm not going to worry about it today because it didn't stop me in my tracks until the next thing you know, they're broken down on the side of the road, and they had the early warning signs, but they didn't do anything yeah. about it. Well, the same thing holds true in all of our lives, and so, uh, again, the more predictive and proactive we can be, I think the better off, but if you orient yourself and your mindset is that it's not a matter of if, but when. When crisis occurs, you will be able to decision-make much more quickly, and you will be able to cycle through more quickly. And I will say, of all the clients I worked with, they do two things really well. The ones that really emerge well, through crisis. I've only, got a, I've only got about 15 seconds left. <laughs> okay, the ones that emerge quickly do two things. They acknowledge it, and they ask for help. And when you do those two things, you're in a much better position to cycle through and be bigger, faster, stronger. Great. Thank you very much, Rob, uh, for joining us today and giving us your insights. Rob's the author of The Art of Crisis Leadership. Check out the book. It is really good. Thanks again, Rob. And to everybody out there, in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.